My name is Father Gregory Pine, and I'm a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph, and I am back here for our most recent installment of Off-Campus Conversations, which are, the, the point of which is to follow up with the Thomistic Institute speaker, uh, pursuant to a lecture on campus or to a retreat or to a conference, so that way we can just dive deeper on what was proposed in that setting and, uh, yeah, just kind of create a, a bit more of a Thomistic Institute community and conversation here. So for this installment, very delighted to be joined by Professor Edward Fazer. Thanks so much for joining Off Campus Conversations. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. Cheers. All right. So um, all of our listeners will probably know you already uh, from many contributions to the Thomistic Institute podcast or to Thomistic Institute events. I think the first time I met you was at a Newberg conference um, where you have been present for many years. Um, and others will know you from your many publications, from your blog, from various contributions. I am actually astonished at the way in which you can weigh in principally, principalledly, I don't know what the adverbial form of that word is, regardless, um, that way, uh, and promptly to contemporary issues with just a solid philosophical grounding, regardless. Okay, so, but for those who don't know you, would you say a, a word of introduction, who you are, where you're from, and what you do? Yeah, so I'm a professor of philosophy at Pasadena City College in Pasadena, California, and um, I'm the author of many uh, academic books and articles, and also I write a lot of popular um, uh, materials, uh, and I've written or edited or been involved with 13 books, um, ranging from topics uh, from uh, arguments for God's existence to the ethics of capital punishment to uh, general metaphysics and philosophy of nature, uh, political philosophy, uh, probably a few things I'm forgetting. And uh, I'm currently working on a, a book on the soul. Um, some readers will be, uh, and listeners will be familiar with my book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God. And I'm doing a book on the soul that's in some way similar. Uh, it sort of does for that topic what the Five, proof, the five Proofs uh, book did for Arguments for God's Existence, insofar as I uh, present a, um, a broadly Thomistic account of human nature, uh, but in dialogue with uh, contemporary analytic philosophy. So it's also a lot like my book, uh, Scholastic Metaphysics and uh, Aristotle's Revenge, which also engaged in the modern uh, analytic literature in uh, metaphysics and philosophy of science, but defending a broadly Aristotelian Thomistic position. So I do that with this book, uh, with the topics of the soul. And so the working title is On the Soul and Its Immortality. Uh, with a subtitle, A Treatise on Human Nature. Kind of a nod to Hume there, even if not a, exactly a friendly nod. <laughs> anyway, that's, so that's a, that's a little bit about me and what's going on with me right now. Okay. I, um, I taught a course at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was supposed to be on Catholic social teaching, so I just made it an RCIA class. Um, and I assigned your book, not that your book is necessarily RCIA class material, uh, Aquinas, and um, specifically the philosophical anthropology part about the soul and my students. Well, they had just read Alistair McIntyre, so they were totally bemused and bewildered, but they found that very clear and helpful. So I look forward to reading the most recent Terrific. installment of Ed Fazer's Soulcraft. Um, so I thought for, for this episode, we would talk about the five ways and you've given many lectures and written many things about the five ways. But I'm thinking of a line from an article of Lawrence Dewan where he says, in order to engage in this type of discourse, you, you need to be able to assume a metaphysical mindset. So I thought maybe we could just talk about the disposition of one who approaches these particular you know, proofs or ways, as it were, to the existence of God and what 
you know, needs to be in place or what gradually falls into place. So with that introduction, what are some good starting points for approaching this type of metaphysical discourse or physical discourse in certain cases, uh, such that it yields more profitably for the student? Yeah, so I like that line from Duan, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, in uh, several places, I've drawn a distinction between natural science, philosophy of nature, and metaphysics, each of which takes a progressively deeper view of the nature of reality. So the way I sometimes describe the uh, distinction is this, that natural science is the systematic rational investigation of the actual natural world, material, spatiotemporal world we find ourselves in. Whereas philosophy of nature is the um, rational investigation of the preconditions of any possible natural world. So it, it pursues things more deeply than natural science does. It's concerned not just with the actual world of physical things we find ourselves in, but what must be true of any possible empirical, physical, natural world, whatever you want to, want to call it. So it arrives at truths that are deeper than those that are given to us by natural science. And then metaphysics, in turn, is the most fundamental discipline of all insofar as it studies the, the rational structure and preconditions of any possible reality, material or non-material, if there is such a thing, which naturally I think there is. Um, and I see philosophy of nature as kind of a branch of metaphysics. Um, you know, exactly what their relationship is is something that Thomists have argued about. But the way I see it is that uh, metaphysics, at least as it's generally understood in contemporary uh, analytic philosophy, is something you could see philosophy of nature as a branch of basically is applying um, the sort of analysis we do in metaphysics, but to the structure of the physical world, to the, to the natural world specifically. Now, the reason I bring this up is that, um, from my point of view, properly to understand the traditional arguments for God's existence, including Aquinas's five ways, we have to see that they are exercises not in natural science, as that's understood today, they're not presenting theories in physics or chemistry or biology or astronomy or anything like that, or cosmology for that matter, as that's understood in contemporary natural science. But rather, their takeoff points are deeper principles in either the philosophy of nature or in metaphysics. And so, the you know, the reason I I um, uh, bring up the relationship between those latter two disciplines is to to understand them in light of Duan's quote, which is that if we if we understand philosophy of nature as I tend to as a kind of branch of metaphysics, applied metaphysics, metaphysics applied to the natural world, then my position is consistent with Duan's, that in order to properly understand the project of understanding God's existence, you have to have a metaphysical mindset. And in particular, in the case of Aquinas's five ways, you have to see that his starting points are not, again, any question or problem in natural science, but rather issues that arise in the philosophy of nature and in metaphysics. So for example, the first of Aquinas's five ways, the argument from motion, begins with an analysis of what must be the case, what the world must be like in order for change to exist in it. And so he brings in the famous Aristotelian theory of actuality and potentiality as the only way to understand how the world can be a world of changing things contrary to what people like Zeno and Parmenides had to say in uh, pre-Socratic philosophy. Or if we're to go beyond the five ways a little bit, um, uh, considering Aquinas's argument in De Ante Essentia, the, the, the essence-existence proof, as it's sometimes called, where he argues from the existence of things in which there's a distinction between their essence and their existence, between what they are and the fact that they are, and argues that the only way to account for them 
is that there's something in which there is no distinction between essence and existence. There, he's applying a set of concepts and lines of analysis that are drawn from metaphysics. Um, but in neither case uh, is he appealing to the sort of question that a physicist might deal with or a biologist, as those terms are understood in, in, in modern science. Of course, in, Aristotel in Aristotle's understanding of physics, which is much broader than the modern conception, um, you know, Aquinas' argument is his first way as an argument from both physics. But in the modern sense, it's not. It, it appeals to deeper truths. So anyway, that would be my way of kind of briefly, or as briefly as I'm ever capable of, um, kind of commenting on on Duan's uh, remark, which I'm sympathetic with. Okay. Um, okay, so <clears throat> pursuant to the comment about those proofs, uh, my question is, what then are the requisite commitments on the part of the thinking subject? Not because I want to get like lost in the thinking subject, but I'm just thinking of, you know, modern and contemporary critiques, which just take their starting point from epistemological or criteological problematics. It's like, but how do we know that we know that we know? Um, whereas it seems that St. Thomas presupposes certain commitments on the part of the reasoner to reality, uh, which to, you know, to a 21st century individual may not be abundantly apparent, especially if you're just immersed in empirical sciences. So can you paint a picture of the type of commitments that need be in place in order for one to approach these arguments uh, well? Well, uh, so how Aquinas's approach to arguing for God's existence compares to those who are writing on those matters after Descartes and after Kant and so forth is an interesting question. Um, one, and, and you could defend different answers to, uh, to these questions. So um, one thing to note is that Aquinas himself, of course, when he's giving the five ways or other arguments for God's existence, he doesn't do a lot of throat clearing the way a modern writer might about how we can even know that there's an external world, how we can know the mind can make contact with it. It's not that he doesn't you know, have things to say about that, but it's not the sort of thing that he thinks is um, part of a prolegomenon to, to doing natural theology. He just kind of gets on with, okay, well, look, we observe there's motion in the world. We observe that things are generated and corrupted as he does in the third way or what have you. Now, some, some uh, I think, 20th century writers, some 20th century Thomists, they thought, well, maybe this is a problem and, and we need to do uh, epistemology before we can get onto the metaphysics or we need to rephrase, the, reframe the natural theology arguments so that they get around Cartesian or Kantian scruples or what have you. Um, and so if that's the case, then, you know, it's kind of a, a, a preliminary to doing natural theology. You'd have to spell out a Thomistic epistemology and argue that, I mean, my way of spelling that out would be that the whole, this whole idea that there's this gap between mind and world epistemologically, uh, such that it could in theory be the case that our experiences and our cognitive activity is just as it is, and yet there's no world outside it to correspond to. I don't think that's ultimately coherent. And I think, you know, that, that there are a lot of um, contemporary writers, every, everyone from Wittgenstein to Heidegger to more recent writers like John McDowell uh, and, and others who I think give um, powerful critiques of the whole modern post-Cartesian problematic and show that uh, the, the whole problematic is based on a set of confusions. And I'm sympathetic to those arguments, but I also think they, 
they kind of lend themselves to a Thomistic appropriation. Um, and I do a little bit of that in my book, Aristotle's Revenge, and uh, a bit more of it in this new book on the soul that I'm, that I'm working on. So that's one way to approach it. You could say, well, okay, so we got to do all this kind of epistemology first and then get to natural theology. And for and it's, to some extent, it depends on your audience. Some, some readers and listeners aren't too worried about that sort of thing. So if you're presupposing realism about the outside world, they're going to say, yeah, okay, that's fine. I don't care about that. I don't have any problem with that. Let's go from there. But another approach would be, well, you can kind of bracket all that off and say, look, suppose you're suppose you're you buy Descartes' supposition, um, at, at least the supposition that he pretends to accept. You know, whether he really does or not, you could argue about that and how to interpret Descartes' meditations. But in the first and second meditations, you know, that this idea that yeah, it could well be that the world is radically different from the way it presents itself to me in experience. You could still arguably run any of Aquinas's arguments just with the starting point that, okay, what exists, what I know exists is just myself as a Cartesian ego. Um, but even if that's what I am and there's no external world, maybe it's all an illusion, maybe it's a deception put in my mind by a, a Cartesian demon, I still go from potency to act, from potential to actual, as I go through a thought process and entertain these things, I still have the marks of something contingent. I've got limitations uh, on my knowledge, for example. I mean, if I'm a Cartesian subject wondering whether I'm awake, that's a, you know, I, can, I don't know for sure, that's quite a limitation. Um, that points to contingency, and the, you get a contingency necessity distinction going, and so on and so forth. And, or, and there's teleology in, within, within me as I I'm a rational agent whose thought processes aim or tend toward the uh, the pursuit of truth. Lo and behold, you've got the ingredients for you know the first way, the third way, the fifth way, and it's the others too. Um, and then you can you know you can train you can rise up from those to the, an argument the existence of an unmoved mover uh, or a supreme intellect or a necessary being without even getting into this broader question of realism, how the mind relates to the world outside. So that's another approach is you could bracket off question these modern epistemological worries and still do natural theology just from the perspective of the Cartesian subject, if you if that's your thing, as it were, you know. Um I and I hope that speaks to your question. It does, yeah. That's that's a nice thing about distinctions like potency and act and essence and existence when it comes to creation or when it comes to creatures. Those types of distinctions, they just they just go all the way down. So you can, uh, you can yeah, just find they, a they point go of to the, They go to the bottom level of reality, exactly. And so, so the question of what um, what are the occupants of reality? Is it material substances? Is it immaterial substances? Is it a mixture of both? How are they related as form and matter, as the soul related to the body as form and matter? Or is it a distinct Cartesian substance that interacts with it? Okay, th those are all very important questions, but... For purposes of natural theology, at least to a large extent, you can you can bracket them off. Seems to me. Yeah. Okay. Then maybe maybe adopting another vantage or another tack, thinking in terms of another modern problematic. It's been observed that the modern mind is atomistic uh, and that it tends to subdivide reality into smallest parts, and it does the same with time, smallest moments. Um, whereas it seems like in the proofs that Saint Thomas advances you have something more along the lines of, hey, look at this ecosystematic harmony or look at this causal arrangement that obtains, you know, or look at this fact, you know, that's shot through 
all of what we perceive or all of what we experience. So maybe, yeah, by way of corrective to a modern difficulty, what are ways in which we can better appreciate the types of relationships which are being described rather than thinking about it as like billiard ball A hits billiard ball B? Well, I mean, I guess it depends in part on which of Aquinas' arguments we're talking about, right? So, for example, if you're talking about the third way, which is the, you know, often characterized or summarizes the argument from contingency for a necessary being, um, it, it probably matters less uh, how right you get your general metaphysics of the physical world. Right. So in other words, suppose someone says, well, look, I'm an atomist or I'm, you know, whatever modern riff on, on ancient atomism we're talking about. And so I don't buy this idea that uh, a dog or a tree or a stone is a composite of substantial form and prime matter, what have you. I think those things are all reducible and it's all just particles in motion, particles arranged dog-wise or whatever people like to say. Okay. I mean, you know, if you want to say that, we can argue about, I mean, I think to some extent you have to get you have to get into the details of the of the nature of dogs and of trees and of stones to see how plausible that sort of view is. But even if you um, even if you grant it for the sake of argument, um, you still have some kind of contingency and necessity in the world, which might be enough to give you an argument from contingency to necessity. Someone like Leibniz, of course, gives such an argument. It's not exactly Aquinas's argument for sure, but he gives an argument that's along those general lines. And he's not doing so challenging um, the basic kind of reductionist uh, uh, model taken for granted by modern philosophy of nature. Um, as a matter of fact, I mean, Leibniz is himself really a kind of idealist, but he thinks ultimately my, you know, the material world is just a perception of the monads of minds. Um, but, you know, somebody could study Leibniz's argument for contingency and not even know that uh, because it doesn't really play a role in the argument, it doesn't factor in. Because the distinction between contingency and necessity is just so general that it, you can apply it, um, however you take phys the physical world ultimately to be ultimately to be structured. Um, so there's a case where you can bracket off, you know, metaphysical questions to a significant extent. Now, I would not say totally, um, because you know, if someone says, "Okay, but I also take the fundamental particles out of which everything is made to be themselves indestructible." neither created nor destroyed or what have you. Well, I don't think that's, I don't think that sort of view ultimately works. I think that even if there were basic atom-like particles, and I mean atom in the, you know, in the, in the older Greek sense, Democritus and Leosippus sense, um, I would think you, I, I think you can't even really make sense of those unless you ultimately attribute to them something like a substantial form, prime matter structure. And, and, once, once we acknowledge they have that, then they've got a certain contingency, which means they're not necessary. They can't be the ultimate reality and so on. But you could at least delay a lot of the controversial metaphysics of, of nature uh, uh, and, and carry out uh, you know, a lot of the argumentation for that argument. But suppose we're considering the fifth way, okay, which is the argument from final cause to a supreme intellect that orders things to their final cause. Well, I mean, final cause is among the most unpopular parts of Aristotelian Thomistic metaphysics in, in, from a modern philosophical point of view. Um, it's as hard a sell as anything. And, but, I mean, the whole fifth way is based on that. So if someone said, well, I can, we can carry out like a fifth way and, and not, not, do, um, not commit ourselves to 
Aristotle's understanding of final cause, I would say that's ridiculous. I mean, you're you're just gutting the entire argument. Now, I would say that there's a sense in which, like William Paley's argument from design, argument for design, does exactly that. So Aristotle's idea of final cause has to do with uh, directedness toward an end or attending toward an end that's built into the very nature of something. The acorn of his very nature tends toward becoming an oak. The uh, sulfur in the head of a match, I'm using some of my stock examples, tends toward the generation of flame and heat. That's contrasted with external teleology, which is imposed from outside, like the teleology or final cause that a watch has or something. And so I would say the Aquinas's fifth way is grounded in the idea of built-in teleology, as Aristotle understands it. But William Paley's design argument is based on the idea of externally imposed teleology, the kind that a watch has, say, which is why he makes use of this watchmaker analogy. Now, if someone said, well, we don't, we can, uh, we can chuck out, you know, Aristotle's idea of teleology for the sake of argument and reformulate Aquinas's argument, his fifth way without it, I would say, well, I mean, now you're giving Paley's argument, and I don't see Paley's argument as really Aquinas's argument at all. I think it's a very different argument. Um, if you're really giving an Aquinas-style argument, then you're going to have to do a lot of metaphysics of final causality before you you give the fifth way. So anyway, these are two examples, the third way and the, and the fifth way, of where I think how much background metaphysics you have to do before you get to argue for God, God's existence is going to depend on the subject matter and how controversial the background metaphysics is for a contemporary philosophical audience. Okay. Um, <clears throat> thinking then again of that audience and of the audience's capacity to prosecute these arguments and then to be convinced by them, to, I mean, I suppose convinced by them can mean a variety of things depending on the setting in which it's interpreted. But what I'm thinking of here is the fact that like, we don't reason in a vacuum, nor are we disembodied brains that just proceed as if by machine logic through the steps that St. Thomas proposes. This is not even taking into consideration the fact that, you know, you got original sin, we're ignorant, we're malicious, we're weak, we're concupiscent, etc. But that all, you know, kind of set to the side. Still, when we approach these arguments, on the one hand, it seems like we expect too much, or many people expect too much. They expect them to, um, you know, convince us with a kind of pellucid clarity at the first reading. But then we also, I think, expect too little because we don't necessarily go into all that's entailed by them. So what would you say by way of managing expectations for somebody who's just starting in on the five ways or maybe working through the five ways for a first systematic time? What, what would you say to expect and not to expect? Well, um, especially if somebody is approaching them without a lot of, or any, you know, especially if they have, they have no uh, acquaintance with classical philosophy in general, by which I mean Plato, Aristotle, scholasticism, that whole scholastic tradition, which I see extending from the ancient Greek tradition up through the Middle Ages, and don't have much awareness of Aristotelianism in particular, they're going to they're gonna find the arguments either less convincing than they really are, or they're going to just misunderstand them, whether they find them convincing or not, they're not likely to understand them. And so in that case, it's really crucial in approaching them for the first time to approach them um, through some, you know, writer, whether it's me or someone else, who can explain that background and hopefully explain it as painlessly as possible so that the arguments are, are um, correctly understood. 
And that's easier to do with some of them than others. So um, when I was working on my book, Five Proofs of God's Existence, and, and somebody might think, oh, that's a book on the five ways. Well, it's actually not. I mean, there's overlap, but the five arguments I gave, in fact, I, as I've, I've told this story before, initially I was going to call it four proofs because I thought, I don't want people thinking, you know, Phaser's, you know, got a swelled head and he's like, he thinks that, you know, well, Aquinas had his five ways. Now here's my five ways, you know, as if I'm <laughs> somehow, you know, doing better than Aquinas, which is ridiculous. Um, so I was going to call it four proofs, but I thought, well, I, you know, they're, they're really five arguments that I think are really the strongest. And I, I want to give all of them in this book. So I just, I'm going to do five proofs and, and, uh, just live with the consequences. So, but the five proofs are not exactly Aquinas's. Now that's not because I don't think Aquinas's five ways all work. I do in fact think they all work. And it's people who say, well, phase, he's a Thomist hack. Of course he has to say they all work. And that's not why, I mean, there are things with, you know, that Aquinas says that I don't, necessarily agree with. But I think that the five ways when properly understood in their larger metaphysical context, once you've got kind of the background metaphysics in place, you've got hylomorphism, you know, this, the form matter structure of physical objects. You've got the theory of actuality and potentiality. You've got final causality. You've got the doctrine of the transcendentals, that being, unity, truth, goodness are really the same thing looked at from different points of view. That's especially relevant to the fourth way. And I think there are independent reasons to accept all that. Once you've got all that in place, I think the five ways actually follow pretty naturally from that. Uh, there's a kind of organic unity, the entirety of the whole system that such that, you know, you accept a fair bit of it. You're going to, you're in for the, for most of the whole thing. Um, so I don't think it's, you know, terribly surprising once you understand Aristotelian to mystic, to mystic metaphysics in detail, that the five ways should all be compelling arguments. However, even though I think that's the case, and I've defended all of them in, in my book on Aquinas, for example, um, I don't find them all equally useful for convincing the average modern reader, whether it's a, 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 someone who's trained in modern philosophy or, or in modern science or, or otherwise. And the reason is that with some of them, there's just way too much heavy lifting in the way of general metaphysics that's required first before you can, you can understand the argument. And in some cases, there's so much that if you, I mean, I'll give you an example of the fourth way. When you know, when you understand enough of the general Aristotelian to mystic metaphysical system to see why the fourth way is a powerful argument, it's the argument from degrees of perfection to a supremely perfect being for, for listeners who aren't familiar with what I'm talking about. Once you see why that is actually a powerful argument, you've already, you know, taken on board so much uh, Aristotelian to mystic metaphysics that you're probably a theist anyway by that point. Um, whereas, you know, with the first way, for example, which is Aquinas himself called it the more manifest way. He thought it was the most sort of intuitively compelling argument of the five ways. And I think he's probably right about that. Um, you don't need to really get into too much beyond the Aristotelian theory of actuality and potentiality. And then you're kind of on the way and you get pretty, you know, directly to the existence of a, a, what I call an unactualized actualizer or an unmoved mover with just that, or, you know, maybe a little bit more than that, but there's less in the way of the whole Aristotelian to mystic metaphysical system. You've got to take on board in order to see the power of that argument. So for that reason, the first way I consider, uh, you know, your mileage may vary. P different people have different views on this. 
Um, but I consider it the most useful for sort of getting uh, people who aren't already uh, initiated into Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy to see that the, 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 there, there are powerful arguments for the existence of God. Um, and so, you know, in my book, Five Proofs, that's one of the arguments I develop. I call it the Aristotelian proof there because Aquinas gets it from, from Aristotle. Uh, and then there's several others, one of which also comes from Aquinas, the, the, the argument in On Being in Essence or De Ante Essentia, where he goes from the disti distinction between uh, thing, things that have a different essence from their existence to a first cause whose essence and existence are identical. That's a very abstract metaphysical argument, but that's another one of Aquinas' arguments. Um, but then I, de I defend a version of Leibniz's argument from contingency to a necessary being. And that's in the general family of Aquinas' third way, which is also an argument of contingency. But the way Aquinas spells it out requires a bit more in the way of philosophy of nature. As I said earlier, you don't have to go the whole hog for everything Aquinas says about philosophy of nature in order to get the third way off the ground. But you need some kind of form-matter distinction, whereas it's, it's, it, you don't necessarily need that for Leibniz's version. So to kind of streamline things, I decided to kind of follow Leibniz's general approach with that argument. So anyway, this is all a kind of long-winded way of saying that, you know, which argument is most suitable and, and going to be accessible to a modern reader. It's going to depend on how much of the general metaphysics that informs the argument is needed in order to understand it. And, you know, when acquainting oneself with it requires, you know, maybe reading someone who kind of understands that metaphysics and, and can bring it to bear on the exposition of the argument. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> I'm thinking about, I mean, some people would explain uh, progressive acclimatization to Aquinas's five ways, just as a matter of what, you know, like discipline or doctrine as a matter of educating oneself, which is true. Uh, some might just describe it as kind of more along the lines of familiar familiarity, or it's something that takes place in time and has an historical dimension, you know, to which we need to be sensitive, you know, which is, you know, true in its own way. Uh, but, but I also think there's a sense in which, um, you know, you can describe it as acquiring the contemplative habits of mind and heart, which dispose you well to the reception, as it were, of the revelation in scare quotes of what the five proofs hold. Um, just tapping in a little bit to like, you know, this kind of ancient notion of theoreo, which is picked up among like, you know, the desert fathers and then transmitted through the church's tradition. So maybe just thinking, thinking about the five ways is like the fruit of, uh, contemplative discourse and also contemplative maturation. Um, what are the, maybe some of the uh, cathartic or purgative exercises that need be undertaken in order to free one for that type of pursuit so that he is not always, whatever, weighed down as it were by things which distract him from the ultimate fruit of this type of inquiry? Well, that's a very interesting and excellent question. And I think, uh, I mean, as you indicate, the five ways are part of this broad tradition that looks at philosophy as a, a contemplative in its nature, as you say, which means, among other things, that it's part of a general attitude toward life or a way of life. And this contrasts this classical and medieval understanding of philosophy with, with uh, the contemporary attitude um, in a very deep way. I mean, there's a tendency in contemporary philosophy, first of all, to see it as very much an academic and impractical sort of discipline. It, you know, with some contemporary academic philosophers, 
you get the sense that they see philosophy as basically a kind of it's like a it's like solving puzzles, but you get paid for it, you know, and and you get to hang out with students and and introduce the puzzles to them and all sit around and have fun and go out in a beer afterward. It doesn't go any deeper than that. And this is the total banalization of philosophy, which for like a Socrates, who's traditionally the model for philosophers, uh, I don't think he's seen that way by a lot of contemporary philosophers. I mean, some of them maybe, but um, for, philo for, for someone like Socrates, and but also for Plato and Aristotle and all the, the great names in the tradition up through the Middle Ages, um, there's really nothing that, you know, there, there, there's, there's nothing that could be more important. You know, everything's at stake in philosophy, the, the very meaning of one's own life and the life of the society and the world around them and so on and so forth. And this reflects the idea that the spirit in which it's done is that one is pursuing truth for its own sake and um, in a way that's absolutely consistent. And, and that requires a kind of honesty with oneself and a willingness to conform oneself to the truth that, you know, I think a lot of modern people are not willing to do. And they don't even really see it as something worth doing, because they, which is it, it, and it's hard to do that if you just see philosophy as you know kind of solving fun puzzles and so forth, and you trivialize it that way. Now, the way this ties into the five ways is this: that if the spirit in which we approach philosophy is that look, the reason that we're doing philosophy is we want to understand the world. We want to know what the world is and why it's the way it is. And part of what that involves is a quest for explanations. I mean, we're not just we don't just want to know what there is out there and what its structures. We want to know why it's the way it is, where it comes from, what accounts for it, and so on. And that, of course, is the, the main project that was introduced by the pre-Socratics and, and the inheritors of the pre-Socratics, which is all of us in philosophy and science. You know, We're engaged in that very same pursuit of trying to understand why things are the way they are, ultimate explanations. Now, I would say when you follow out the very idea of ultimate explanation, it's very hard to avoid theism. I don't think you can, theism of some sort, because it's very difficult and I would say impossible to even make sense of the idea of an ultimate explanation, you know, a place where the explanatory buck stops, as it were, uh, without the idea of something like some feature of reality that's absolutely necessary and could not be otherwise, could not be other than it is. Where when you unpack that, this is the idea of a necessary being. It's going to be, I would say, the idea of something that's pure actuality, something that's absolutely simple, and so on. And once you get that, you're really a theist of some sort. And now the only question remaining is, what is the nature of this God that whose existence we've arrived at, not the existence? Okay. I think all of that actually is kind of embedded in the very project of ultimate explanation. But to see that, you have to, you have to be looking for it, right? You have to be looking for an ultimate explanation. You have to be looking, you have to be deeply committed existentially, as it were, to the pursuit of, of achieving a, a, as complete as possible an understanding of the world as we're capable of, of finding the truth about the world. Now, if instead you look at philosophy as just kind of a, a puzzle-solving activity, it's kind of a fun little game and, you know, you know, if you got a trolley and if it goes on this side of the track, if you're going to kill one person, if you go this side, you kill 10 and all these sort of dumb little puzzles people come up with. Um, you're not, you know, you're not serious enough about what you're doing in order to see the, in order to be even interested in seeing the power 
of an attempt at ultimate explanation like the five ways represent. And one more thing before I pause here, another highly regrettable part of contemporary intellectual life, which has only gotten worse with the rise of the internet, is that intellectual activity, also, not only is it seen as puzzle solving, but it's, it's like a competitive puzzle solving, right? Where you're trying to one-up the other person and uh, public exchanges over questions of the most ultimate importance, um, the existence of God, moral questions, uh, metaphysical questions, the nature and implications of science end up being clashes of egos and, um, you know, all sorts of uh, political interests get to be associated with them. So that the way people tend to look at intellectual engagements is, well, there's my side and there's this other side. And the goal is to make my side look good and the other side look stupid. And that's the spirit in which these things are approached. So often, if, if it's debates about arguments for God's existence that are in play, there's a lot of this sort of spirit in which it's done. A lot of trash talking and, you know, I blew this guy out of the water and I showed he was an idiot. It's, it's, it's childish, but it's deeply unphilosophical. And where, you know, the classical model of philosophy is we're engaged in a common pursuit, which is the truth. And we're sort of friends in this enterprise of seeking this common end of the truth. Uh, rather than just, you know, sort of self-aggrandizement or upholding some partisan interest or what have you. So the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, you, you talk about what sort of spiritual state one ought to be in in order properly to understand these sort of arguments. And I would say, ideally, one should approach philosophy in general as the pursuit of truth and, and that where that includes ultimate explanation, rather than just matter of solving clever puzzles or of a clash of egos in the public sphere trying to, you know, make your side look good and the other side look bad. That's the, that's the wrong sort of approach really to take toward any philosophical issue, but certainly one where the stakes are as high as whether God exists. Yeah. And, and with that point too, the questions with which I began, you know, of ignorance and malice and weakness and concupiscence, they come back up because insofar as one has not cultivated some modicum of virtue, it becomes exceedingly difficult to harness the aforementioned ego. <laughs> because then the fear of being shown wrong asserts itself with such vehemence that you only think of like defending yourself or kind of buffering yourself from the potential conflict which might arise should you be proved, what, inadequate to the task. So yeah, internet debates, such a fascinating phenomenon. I mean, I, I think if I can just elaborate just a little bit yeah. more, and I don't, I, I don't want to step on what okay. point you want to make, but um, these things ultimately, I mean, they're, they're really deep issues, require a certain measure of tranquility uh, adequately and seriously to address. And internet exchanges don't lend themselves to that. And over the, over the years, um, you know, I've seen it, we can all think of examples of people who've really gone into some nutty and disturbing areas. They've fallen into some weird views or they've had sort of public meltdowns and so on because they're simply too engaged in the controversy du jour. They're too engaged in the political partisan and other uh, controversies of the moment. And it affects the way they see matters of religion, matters of ethics. And, and, this is not a good way to, to arrive at views about those things. It's not a good way to approach the question of whether God exists or whether Christianity is true or questions, of, you know, fundamental questions about ethics. Those things have to be approached with a certain measure of tranquility 
And but you can't have tranquility if you're always worried about what did they, who said what on Twitter this week or who said what on this blog or what's going you know who's going to win the election all that kind of stuff. And so you have to detach yourself from that to some extent. And the more one finds oneself sort of fraught and whipped up and constantly angry, or constantly anxious, uh, that's a sign you're not really going to approach these things responsibly or or well. And so. I think someone has, if, you know, if someone's engaged in online debate and finds that that's their constant mindset, they probably should disengage. And only when they're capable of uh, having a certain tranquility and looking at the online engagements as kind of, they're kind of a supplement to the serious stuff where the serious debates are the ones that you can engage in without having to log in every morning and see what's going on online. And instead you can be there by yourself with a book. It, it having a, an engagement, you might say, with a mind that existed 100 or 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 years ago, where what the person has to say to you is just as relevant now as it was then, and where you can kind of sit back and contemplate what they're saying and try to understand it and see whether it's true without worrying about, okay, but you know, how is this going to play on Twitter? How is this going to play on, uh, you know, on, uh, in, in some contemporary political discussion? That stuff ultimately is, is, is of secondary or tertiary importance. So one has to cultivate this kind of tranquility of mind in order to do these things well. Yeah. And, and I think too, that's, that kind of helps orient even these type of exchanges. Like what's the point of the Thomistic Institute, Institute podcast? It's to get off the Thomistic Institute podcast, um, right? It's to encounter certain people who propose certain things with which you can follow up typically in a written medium and then, you know, foster the relationships, which will ultimately, you know, like see you through a life of contemplation and study, which please God, you know, ends in heaven. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I, <laughs> I think about that often insofar as, you know, we get so accustomed to listen to podcasts when we're going hither and thither to the point where we can't be alone. We can't be silent. We can't think about things unaccompanied by background noise. It can become dangerous. So yeah, maybe that's a, that's a, a good way to wrap up the episode as we, as we kind of lapse into a respectful silence. <laughs> um, Appropriate okay. So yeah, exactly. Um, so for, for those who do want to follow up in a written medium, uh, we talked about the Aquinas book, which has a good 50, 60 pages on the five ways or the five proofs of Aquinas himself. And then we talked about the five proofs book, uh, which has, you know, a kind of Aristotelian and Platonic inspiration, but goes beyond into more modern proofs as you described. Are there other things that you would recommend apropos of this conversation? Well, I mean, if we're, if you're asking about my own work uh people can check out my website edwardfazer.com and they'll find uh information about and links to articles other other books other writings other um video resources and the like excellent wonderful and um the Thomistic institute has recently i think they're doing dueling aquinas 101 courses right now the one is on the sacraments and then the other one is on the five ways so a deep dive with um different you know priests and professors from the house of studies and beyond uh, so yeah, check those out as well. Um, so then turning to you, the listener, uh, thanks so much for having tuned into this episode of, uh, off campus conversations on the Thomistic Institute podcast. And we will look forward to chatting with you at the next opportunity, unless between now and then you've made the decision to tap out for which decision we congratulate you. All right. No of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you next time. Should that happen on the Thomistic Institute podcast.